Hi, this is Dory Clark. I'm Andrew Davis. Hi, this is Mark Roberge, and this is The Craft of Marketing. Hi, I'm Seth Price, and you're listening to The Craft of Marketing, where I go behind the scenes with professionals who are exceptional at their craft to discover the insights that they use to succeed at marketing. If I told you, you could hire an engineer to hack the sales process to create a predictable model for growth, would you do it? That's exactly what one company did. They hired an MIT alum with an engineering background to rethink the sales and marketing process. Then they went on to build a $100 million company using data, technology, processes for predictable hiring, sales and marketing SLAs, inbound marketing and selling. Mark Roberge is that guy. He's the SVP of worldwide sales and services for a little software company called HubSpot, where he led the team to acquiring the company's first 10,000 customers across more than 60 countries. In this episode, we explore that journey to finding the process for predictable, repeatable success. Listen in for an honest account of what marketing is all about, the tips, hacks, and strategies that professionals share with each other but rarely talk about in public. This episode is sponsored by Playster, the number one platform for powering real estate listings on the web. For more information, go to playster.com. Mark, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, Super psyched to have you on. Um, For those that don't know about you and your work at HubSpot, give me just like the cliff notes and then I can ask you lots of questions after that. Yeah, sure. Um, I met the founders at MIT way back in 2005, um, joined on in, I don't know, the three or four employee range to build out the sales team. Uh, did that for the first seven years of the business. Um, I actually took over services uh, through that journey as well and scaled the organization to a uh, hundred million in run rate uh, during that tenure and about 450 employees in the sales and services team. You've got this really interesting perspective on sales and marketing that I'd like to explore. So you're an engineer by training and somehow you ended up running a sales team that's now one of the fastest growing SaaS marketing software companies around. How did, I mean, one, I understand that you met Brian and Darmish, but how did that happen? How did they choose you and you choose them? You know, I mean, uh, you know, I, I did the MBA program at MIT, and, and it was really a passion for entrepreneurship that I was pursuing. You know, I did, I did some startups prior to it, and I, that was my goal was to kind of solidify my place in that ecosystem. And I was trying to figure out while I was there what my functional contribution would be. You know, and part of me was really attracted to marketing um, because I just feel like that was a more uh, classic fit for an MBA. It was going more of an analytical uh, function, which was a strength of mine. Um, but what I didn't like about it was it was kind of, I love talking to people, you know, I love doing deals and, and that's what attracted me to the sales side. Uh, it was just a non-traditional path for an MBA. Um, and the, when the opportunity at HubSpot, you know, when it, when it was presented to me, it was kind of the best of both worlds to be, uh, you know, running sales and really mastering that function, but also, you know, staying relevant with, 
with the world of marketing. Um, the way it came to be was I, I really started at the company as sort of a consultant one day a week when they were just trying to figure this thing out. And when Brian came on to be CEO, he's more of a sales guy. He's like, listen, I'm a, if I'm going to have you for one day a week, I want you to bring in customers. We just need a <laughs> bunch of customers to validate this thesis, you know? Yeah. So that that's how it kind of came about. And um, I had no idea if I could do it. I don't think he had any idea. But for, you know, one day a week for eight months or whatever it was, it brought in a a bunch of customers and that gave me confidence I could do it. And it, it gave him confidence that he could sign me up for the first part of this at least. I love Brian's attitude. He's always asking for the world and, uh, and he gets <laughs> it, which, which is fantastic. Um, so you were also, so you were a year. So how long is the MBA program at MIT? Two years. Two years. Okay. So during that time, I mean, I, I'm aware of this, you were a TA. One of the things that I, I thought was really interesting is, um, Howard Anderson's class, they bring in some really brilliant minds to talk about their businesses. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Cause I don't think many people are aware of the access that you get when you're in a program like that. Yeah. I mean, I, you, you really get to craft your own journey. You know, when you go to these programs and my journey was very much in the startup world, um, which was kind of unique at the time because it was still close enough to the bubble burst that more and more people were pursuing the I banking and consulting routes. Um, but you know, I took every entrepreneurship class possible there. I, I actually purposely took the minimum class load, uh, just so I could help a startup every semester and, match the, you know, the academic work with, with real time stuff that was actually going on. Yeah. And, you know, the, the class that you're referencing, uh, that Howard Anderson teaches new enterprises, uh, or taught, um, you know, this, this, this is an example of the different types of exposure you can get. I mean, this is a class where you go in and you try to start your own business. Um, you know, 10 of the students are actually selected to, to run, you know, this, this business plan development exercise with the help of the other students in there. And every single class, which occurs twice a month, twice a week, um, they bring in uh, uh, an active entrepreneur uh, to kind of talk about well, how their journey's unfolded so far, what are the challenges that they're happening in their startup. I mean, those are the types of classes where you just take a lot of learnings away from. Yeah. You know, it, it's great to get the fundamentals down uh, from the textbook, um, but you know, you take a ton of learnings away from uh, from those types of uh, uh, of classes. Another one that Howard also taught was CEO perspective, and he brought in CEOs of Fortune 500 companies every Tuesday night we would meet. And I mean, man, to get into their heads as to the type of stuff they're working on and to have access to those people just to ask whatever questions you want, um, just tons of learnings there. I think it's so critical to surround yourself with people that well, one have at least forged a path. It may not be identical to where you're going, but at least have been through it because then you can go, Oh, they're a real human. And Oh, they're dealing with this stuff that is way beyond my mindset, but at least I know it exists. Um, exactly. You, you know, one of the things that I'm was fascinated with when I, you know, the first time that I met you and I've certainly known about you was the idea of you bringing these engineering concepts of, you know, repeatable, scalable, predictable to the sales environment. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, um, my background prior to HubSpot, I mean, I was in, I was an engineer undergrad. Um, I, I started my career actually writing code and, um, 
and then obviously the, the MIT MBA is a pretty quant-oriented MBA. So I've, I've had this professional foundation that's very quant-oriented. And, you know, to be quite frank, the, the bringing, you know, bringing that foundation to the world of sales leadership was not, you know, an attempt I made to kind of like write a book or craft a story. It was really just a, a, how I survive, <laughs> you know, in, in parallel, in parallel with like getting out of MIT and, and, and then joining HubSpot. I mean, I had a lot of good, but, um, stressful, uh, personal responsibilities happening. My wife and I had our first baby. We got pregnant again shortly thereafter. Uh, you needed to buy a house to, to put this growing family in. And, um, you know, so, uh, all these awesome things were happening to me personally, but they were raising the bars to like, you know, my, my responsibility. And, um, uh, when, when I'm, when I'm under stress like that, I lean into the numbers and, and need the predictably just so I could sleep at night. Um, and fortunately, um, I think the world of sales was hitting a time where that was a very useful application. You know, I think, um, the world of sales has, has largely been moving, you know, inside from outside. Um, that presents an, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's becoming a little bit more transactional uh, and fast-paced in, in uh, its processes. Um, and, you know, the, it's easier to capture data. Uh, it's easier, easier to integrate the CRM into the world of the salesperson today. And uh, all these factors allow us to, uh, you know, think about sales as a little bit more of a science, um, something that can be uh, more predictable and, and really, when it's rested on the foundation of, of analytics and process, it can be a very powerful thing. So you, you ended up writing um, a book which has recently come out, which I have enjoyed greatly and wish that I had had a decade ago, if not more, um, The Sales Acceleration Formula. In that book, you talk about, you know, sort of the four pillars can you walk us through the thought process there and, and just give us some highlights? Yeah, sure. Uh, so it's the sales acceleration formula and, uh, very fortunate that it's hit number one Amazon bestseller. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, so when I took the role as, as stated, my mission was predictable, scalable revenue growth. And as I reflected on that mission, there were really four attributes that I was uh, focused on. Uh, the first was how can I hire, the same successful salesperson every single time. The second was how could I train these new salespeople in a very predictable way to be ready for success in the funnel. The third was how could I provide them with the same quality and quantity of leads and demand gen every single month. And the fourth was how can I hold the team accountable to working those leads with the same process. Uh, and that really is the foundation uh, of the book of just driving into those four pillars and on how we scale things up. One of the things that I found really interesting, and I think you had mentioned this to me when you led a workshop at, uh, at Techstars, um, was that from the very beginning, the sort of crucial focus point that you honed in on was hiring and how to how to scale that and how to repeat that. To me, that was... I mean, most sales folks, a, a lot of it is you're under such pressure that you skip some of that foundational stuff because you, you know, you've got to close the deals and you sort of focus on pipeline as, oppo as opposed to focusing on the sales. Like what, what made you think that that was the thing that was the first action you should do? 
Yeah, the um, you know, I, I think when most entrepreneurs can relate to the fact that when you you're, you're very overwhelmed when you're in the early stage stuff. And as I looked at my mission and my journey, um, to be quite frank, you know, I I had a sense of what an A plus job would be on hiring and training and managing the team, but you know, as a sole individual with no resources. Um, it really was probably a 200 hour work week, uh, to do that, that, you know, a plus job. And I was willing to give it 80, but, um, you know, there's only so many hours in a day. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you got to cut corners in some places and you got to choose where you're really going to crush it. And, um, as I reflected on that scenario, it was, it was, you know, the bet I wanted to make was, listen, I got to crush hiring. And if I do an above average job on, on training and managing uh, and an exceptional job on hiring, that's my most likely way to win. Uh, because if I don't crush hiring and, I, and then some B and C players squeeze in here, um, it's going to be an uphill battle. Yeah. Uh, versus, you know, if you just get A players in, even if you're not that exceptional at training and management in the early goings, A players find a way to win. And so that, it was that reflection that, you know, caused me to just really crush that out of the gate. Very cool. I'd love to switch gears and talk about, um, the intersection between sales and marketing. Um, when did Mike Volpe start on the team? Right before me. Um, so he, I was trying to get him, actually I was doing kind of a, a, a different startup on my own right out of school while I was doing the one day a week of HubSpot. And, um, I was trying to get him to come be my head of marketing and he was, he was interested. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, then one day he called me and basically said he was going on his own and basically told me the value prop of HubSpot. <laughs> so, uh, I, I told him that, uh, you know, good news, bad news, uh, you know, bad news is his two really smart guys from MIT that are probably six months ahead of him. Uh, but the good news is that I've got a relationship with them. I'm working with them one day a week and why don't I put the two of you together? So a few weeks later he was on full time and jumped out of SolidWorks uh, to, to be the head of marketing. And, um, what, you know, that's a huge win for the company. He's a, uh, he's a genius in market, obviously. Oh yeah. He's fantastic. I think what the thing that I'm curious about is clearly you guys worked very tightly together. Um, how did you, as a sale, you know, a sales head, how did you figure out how to work with marketing? And then how did you, you know, create rules that you, rules of engagement for both sides of the, of the team there? Yeah. The sales and marketing relationship is really critical these days with so many of the early stages of the buying journey starting online. It's really critical that there's these rules are in place and there's a smooth handoff um, from marketing to sales and, and then sales back to marketing if necessary. So we, there's not, there's not a ton of rock, you know, rocket science here. We, we just clearly define what a qualified lead was, um, and then put Mike's team on what we call an SLA, a service level agreement as to how many are necessary. Um, and, and then, you know, for sales to be accountable to once these qualified leads are created, what behaviors against those leads are we signing up to as well? And so, um, we, we got, initially it was really just a, a raw number of this many mid market leads is necessary for the, the month, uh, which is fine. I mean, if you, if the organization can get there, that's like top five or 10%, Yeah. but we got it so far that, um, you know, the best way to do it is really 
think about the different types of qualified leads. You could have, you know, executives downloading ebooks. You can have, um, you know, mid-market managers uh, requesting demos, uh, being active in trials. These are all really good leads that they yeah. should be calling on. However, some are even better than others. And so what we did was we, we defined those different segments of leads that we'd be passing the team and over time calculated what their average close rates are and how much they spend when they do close. And when you multiply those two numbers together, like if the lead closes, these leads close at 2% of the time and they typically spend $100,000, well, each one of those leads is worth $2,000. Yeah. You've essentially you know, engineered a lead value for yourself. And once you have these lead values, you can then put marketing on a revenue quota, which is a, a really cool concept to, to have them share the burden of sales of driving the revenue of the organization. Yeah. And you also perfectly align their incentives to drive qualified lead flow because the more qualified they can drive that, that lead volume, the more they're, they're, um, uh, you know, they're credited uh, yeah. from a lead value score. And then, and then sales really, we did a, you know, a lot of uh, analytics around what's the ideal call pattern, right? So it, it's obvious you got to call the lead right away when yeah. it comes in. And you, just have to, you should do that within minutes. But if you do get a voicemail, when do you try it again? Like this afternoon or tomorrow? And how often do you call the lead? Yeah. Do you call it once or five or ten times? So those studies led to um, us knowing what the ideal call patterns were against that and being able to essentially program that into the CRM so that um, it guides the sales reps, which they love. I mean, they don't, they don't want to be thinking about which lead to call next and how often to call. They want to be thinking about, you know, how to break the ice with this prospect and, and you know, how to build trust with them on a connect call. Um, so this is a really great way for us to, to manage the, the daily cadence around our sales and marketing alignment. Yeah, it's it seems like, you know, to me, one, that's a nirvana from a CRM perspective is the CRM should tell you who to interact with and then give you the, you know, uh, demographic psychographic information. So you go, hey, how do I interact? What when you guys started doing that, did you see a tangible difference in your, you know, in your bottom line and your ARR or however you were, you know, ultimately measuring your goals? Uh, to be quite frank, we did this from day one, um, so there probably wasn't as big of an opportunity. I will say that um, uh, we had some iterations in there. One of the major ones was moving from just a pure, you know, this is how many leads we need to that revenue um, approach. We probably did that two years into the business or so, and for sure we saw uh, a nice, you know, spike from that. I don't remember the the, the amount, but... Literally, I mean, at that point, if you're just call, call, you know, if you're just counting leads, the easiest way for a marketing team to convert uh, a qualified lead is to get them to download an ebook. Yeah. But unfortunately, that is, um, you know, further back in the buying journey than say a demo request or a trial. And when we move toward this more revenue approach to counting lead flow, you saw a dramatic shift in the in the density of calls to actions around demos and free trials in both on the, both the website and the lead nurturing campaigns, et cetera. And you see a lot, you saw a lot more leads entering the sales pipeline um, that were further down the buying journey, thanks to marketing. So that, that definitely had a dramatic shift. 
let me ask you um, just a couple more questions. Um, mm-hmm. One is when you guys, actually for you specifically, when you were thinking about incorporating service, what was the reasoning by bringing bringing your focus on service as part of the entire, you know, funnel continuity? Um, really an appreciation of the importance of the end-to-end customer success and, and customer retention in the world of SaaS. You know, SaaS is, has, you know, the concept of SaaS, software as a service, where it's more of a subscription revenue base. Um, it changes a lot of a traditional sales model or a traditional software model and the key metrics that you measure and how you compensate your salespeople and how you um, facilitate uh, strong handoffs between marketing, sales, and services, sort of the traditional front office and experience for that customer. Yeah. And I think the trigger for the company really was uh, this isn't just a new revenue game. This is a net revenue game. And churn and retention are just as important, if not more important, as you scale yeah. uh, than the new revenue coming in. And they really wanted, you know, strong alignment there and decided that they kind of, as, as Brian put it, have one neck to choke uh, <laughs> on, that, on that metric. And I was the, uh, I was the chosen one on yeah, that. Um, so that was really the driver was an appreciation of, of how important alignment is yeah. uh, between those two teams and making sure that, um, you know, that, that started with the org structure. Awesome. Uh, Mark, I really appreciate your time and uh, I'd love for you to let people know where they can find out more about you and where they can find your book. Yeah. Yeah. Just two things I'd love to mention, Seth. On the book, um, you can get that at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, the sales acceleration formula. The, the things I want to mention on it and, and HubSpot is, uh, number one, 100% of the proceeds on the book go to uh, build.org, uh, which is an awesome nonprofit um, that started a couple of years ago. And what they do is basically they find the, the you know, some of the, 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 the poorest um, neighborhoods in some of these major cities, kids who just have not been dealt the deck that you and I have been dealt, Seth, and uh, go in there and take these kids who have a really low graduation rate and low matriculation rate and get involved with them in their freshman year and help them find the passion of entrepreneurship. And get them to start a business. That's fact. And That's they've fantastic. done this for many, many years. And yeah, the the graduation rate I think is like ninety nine percent of the kids that actually um, you know get into the program, and a huge number of them go off to college and finish college. More importantly, so a hundred percent of the proceeds go to that. Check out that organization um, if you're an entrepreneur and, and get involved in that. And the second thing is more of the business at a HubSpot. Just so the, the market, you know, the, the, leader, the, the listeners know, we have two free products in our sales uh, product line now. We, we launched a free CRM uh, a month ago. So uh, if you're interested in checking out that, we've had, uh, you know, 60,000 companies now using our sales product. So, uh, so please check that out. And then we've got a really cool product called Sidekick at GetSidekick.com that basically tells you when someone opens up their email. I love um, it. Just a couple... Yeah, free tools for folks to check out if they want to, if they want to see that. Yeah, one of the things, uh, another time I'll have you on is to talk about technology as a marketing tool. Um because there's a there's a lot of a lot of meat on the bones there. Uh, but Mark, thank you so much for your time and uh we'll be in touch soon. Great. Thanks, Seth. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Craft of Marketing. 
If you liked what you've heard here, I've got something that I want to send you. I've put together a free cheat sheet of marketing resources to use for personal branding. I've been keeping all these private notes on the subject and decided to put together the ultimate guide to personal branding resources just for listeners like you. You can grab your free copy right now by going to craftofmarketing.com forward slash gift. And remember, everybody markets in some way or another, but it's the craft we bring to the table that makes a difference.